when you actually go and spend time and you live in a black community, you'll see that there's so much more, right? We're not all just rappers and athletes, nothing against folks that do that, but there's so much more to our community. There's scientists, right? There's authors, right? There's entrepreneurs. There's so much diversity once you actually have those human relationships. I'm Leila Saad, and my life is driven by one burning question. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing changemakers and culture shapers who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Good Ancestor Podcast. I'm your host, Leila Saad, and today I'm speaking with Ramon Stevens from The Conscious Kid. Ramon Stevens is a PhD student at the University of California, San Diego, and executive director at The Conscious Kid. His research focuses on recruitment, retention, resilience, and student voice for Black students and marginalized student groups. He's currently researching Black graduate experiences at UC San Diego. Ramon has created, developed, and supported student-driven, culturally relevant curriculum and programs for various universities, high school districts, schools, and nonprofits across California, Washington, and Washington, D.C. Currently, his research supports UC San Diego and San Diego Unified in the development and implementation of a district-wide ethnic studies curriculum. Ramon has presented his research at conferences, including Stanford's Race Inequality Language Conference and the American Educational Research Association Conference. The way that I have got to know about Ramon and the incredible work that he's doing over at The Conscious Kid is through Instagram. The Conscious Kid has a thriving Instagram community that is incredibly educational and I'm really excited to be speaking with him today. So welcome to the show, Ramon. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. I'm really excited to be here with you too. Let's dive straight in. Our first question, who are some of the ancestors living or transitioned societal or familial who have influenced you on your journey? Wow, that's such a deep question. There's so many that I can think of, but if I were to kind of go down from the beginning, I'd have to definitely give credit to, uh, you know, my mother and my father, um, my grandparents as well. You know, my mom made sure and my dad made sure that, you know, we were exposed to diverse narratives, always conversations of equity around the table, reading books as a child, all the way to being an adult. And so there's just so much. And so I guess if we were to even talk about actual authors, you know, so out the gate, I'm going to obviously give it up to my family. Uh, my grandparents also. But if we're going to talk about authors, you know, I, I can talk about that all day long. <laughs> <laughs> who are some of the authors that really get you excited when you think about them, whose work you're always, you know, quoting or is top of mind for you? Well, let's see. Off the top of my head, I really like Sylvia Winter. I really like Bell Hooks. 
I really like Lori Ladson Billings, uh, Arnitha Ball, Derek Bell, Chester Pierce, Kimberly Crenshaw, Audrey Lord. I could probably go on forever. But <laughs> just, a, just a few off the top of my head, I, I can think of, you know, Angela Valenzuela. Yeah. Uh, books and, and writing obviously is a passion for you as it is for me. I would love to know about how you got started on this journey of creating The Conscious Kid. And if you could tell our listeners who've never heard of The Conscious Kid before, what is it that you do over at The Conscious Kid? So The Conscious Kid was started uh, with me and my wife, Katie Shizuka. She also wrote the paper with, a, we both wrote it together on the Dr. Seuss article that you'll see. So she's very, very important in this work. So I want to make sure I give her credit um, where it's due. So yeah, we're both uh, authors and researchers, but we're also parents. So we have two young kids of color. And so we're looking for books to find representation of them when they were born because we wanted them to have you know powerful narratives that empowered who they were and built their identity up. So, you know, we went to the went to the library and I remember Katie goes and asks, you know, how many books do you have that has black characters? You know, because our sons are half black and part I had quarter Japanese and uh, quarter white. Um, so they're they're mixed, but their their hair is distinctly black. I mean they look they, you can tell that they're black. <laughs> so the librarian goes in the back and she comes back with three books out of the whole library. You know, one of which is some, is a, is a black girl praying to God that her hair isn't nappy. Um, another one oh is my like gosh. this character's hair. And we're like, wow, this is interesting. So as we, you know, we're talking about this amongst ourselves and we're talking about this with other parents of color, they're finding the same situation where they're trying to find these empowering narratives, but there's just, this seems to be a lack of books before, you know, underrepresented and marginalized groups and but also by those groups as well. And so as we started to do this work, we started looking at different libraries and noticing the same pattern and going online and looking at all these kind of publishing things. So it became this thing where you have to go through all this work to find a good book that's by a person of color from the group that still has empowering narratives. And the books were like, they were so, we're collecting them in our library and began sharing them with other parents. You know, we're just like, you know, maybe we should make a project out of this. And it kind of birthed into this concept of, you know, research, training for equity, but also making sure parents still have access to tools that help, you know, build positive racial identity for their children and for, you know, other students that they help raise. That's incredible. And I'm really moved by that because here on the Good Ancestor podcast, and when I think about what it means to me to be a good ancestor, it starts first with my children and the impact Mm. that my being, first of all, has on them. And then Mm. the things that I do in the world how that impacts them. And it gives me chills just, you know, hearing about how this really important work was born and that it started first with your, with your own children. You know, the, the mm-hmm. conscious kid is really, I see it providing so many resources and so much education to so many different parents. And so you're having this impact on other people's kids who you didn't, you know, you weren't not thinking about when this journey began. And it's really beautiful to see how that love for your children has rippled out into this amazing project. Well, thank you. It's, it's an honor to, to, hear, to hear those positive words. Um, and it's super cool, too, being a parent and going through this process because, you know, as we, we work with our, you know, people who support our work and come to our page and so on and so forth, you know, we're experiencing this journal, journey with you. I mean, 
part of it is theoretical and research, but it's like, no, we're real parents, real human beings, real people of color here that are going through this process. And so we share your pain and your struggles that come with trying to um, have the highest expression of yourself within a system that is consistently trying to limit you or marginalize you. I think that's such an important point to make that you are human beings just like everyone else, parents just like everyone else, going through the journey of parenthood as your kids grow and are at different stages of of their lives and you're at different stages of your parenthood. And then at the same time, you're exploring these findings, sharing these, you know, treasures, but also these research findings, which I'd love to talk next about the paper that you and Katie have put together on on Dr. Seuss. But I, I really resonate with that. I remember part of my early on frustration when I received the question from white parents, you know, what am I supposed to teach my kids about racism or how can I find, you know, more books that are more diverse, you know, questions of that nature, which are valid questions. I remember feeling frustrated because I remember feeling like I'm also just trying to figure it out. <laughs> like, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm trying to find the books. I'm trying to understand how to navigate this. And I think that can be forgotten when you're in the position like you and, and, and Katie at The Conscious Kid are in, where people come to you and to your page as a resource. Right. Right. Totally. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, and I totally get that, you know, and here's the thing is, it's pretty funny. You'll see, we get those questions, you know, all the time, you know, how do I raise my child? And it's kind of <laughs> it's like, I don't know. How do I raise mine? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's really, it's really funny. And people will expect sometimes, and it's a thing for people of color and especially for white folks to be asking people of color to raise their children, which historically has been a thing when you talk about slavery or indigenous folks being colonized and people being utilized to raise their children and the expectation that you're like this representative for all people of color and all Mm -hmm. forms of equity. And you know, you're like this token person that they come to for advice that's supposed to know everything. And, you know, we're all in this process figuring it out and making sure white parents also take it upon themselves to find other resources to train themselves as opposed to expecting people of color to do it for them. But at the same time, we still support folks that are obviously allies and come to our pages of resource, but at the same time, just being mindful of the labor that you expect from folks, you know, and who okay. you're expecting. From. Yes. Yeah. I think you do a beautiful job of really making it clear where your center point is, who is being centered. You know, as we talked about in the introduction, it's really about focusing on Uh, Black student voices and marginalized voices, rather than the intention being a resource for white parents to come. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They get the benefit of the work that you're doing, but they're not the intended beneficiaries. Exactly, right? And that's important because it's like, we do this work for our community, right? We do this work to support ourselves. We do it to support our resilience um, within our community. And for white folks, if you can benefit from that, that's great. You know, we appreciate the support. Come on in. But just remember that we keep our community group centered, right? And that's important because how else is going to know you better than coming from yourself or somebody who represents that, that part of life? So 
that's great because a lot of times it's where people will do this and will forget like who they're doing it for. And a lot of times it is to appease, it ends up appeasing white folks. Or you see people doing research, always juxtaposing or comparing themselves to white folks and using whiteness as a standard for what is normal, as opposed to looking deeply within their own community and creating a unique framework that starts with that, as opposed to this kind of binary situation. Yeah, exactly. I just want to pick up on something you just said there. Um, You said using whiteness as a standard for normal. And so I grew up in the UK, you know, I'm not American, I'm, I'm British. I grew up in the UK and we did have the Dr. Seuss books in our libraries, but they were not as popular as I believe they are in the US. Mm. We had other kinds of books. I remember we had a series of books called Peter and Jane, and they were, I think, brother and sister. I don't know if you have that in the US. Mm, um, I'm not sure, yeah. yeah, so there are these boy and this girl, Peter and Jane, I believe they're brother and sister, and it was a book that would teach you how to read. So it was very simple sentences that you would read, but they were the standard books that I I still remember them. And when I think back, I can't remember ever seeing a book with a, as a child, a book with a black character or even a character who was a, a kid of color. And I think so much about, as I do my own, you know, personal healing work around my own internalized oppression, I think a lot about the messages that I internalize as a child around white as the standard of normal. Right. And what that then meant about me and what that meant about people that look like me. Can we talk a little bit about what is actually the impact that you have seen, that you understand of children of color and black children not seeing themselves represented mm-hmm. in literature? Oh, that's a great, that's a great, great talking point right there. So one of the things that we noticed, and this is supported by research, right? But you can see it also in your own personal home and in my own personal experiences growing up, right? When we talk about why do educators sometimes have a tough time engaging students of color, right? The quick argument is to, oh, well, those kids aren't, aren't working hard enough and their families don't value education and all these myths that are not necessarily true. Part of it is not being able to see yourself in the literature, right? If you want to create or manifest a vision, you have to be able to see yourself in that vision first, right? So if you can't see yourself within the literature and it's not relating to your life, you know, why am I even here? How does this apply to me? I don't even know how to use this stuff because all the stuff in this in these books, concepts in these books are usually there because of some sort of white privilege. And the person in the book is often a white person who is being privileged, right? So that's not necessarily correlative to your life or your experiences that you have. So you see this disengagement from both education at large, but also within themselves. And and the thing is, is like, when we look at like the publishing industry, there's so many books about people of color still written by white folks. So it still comes from this lens of whiteness. Right. So when you get to see yourself in this books, sometimes the image is distorted because the sense of like whiteness and white middle-class norms often being centered as what is normal, right? Oftentimes being colorblind, you have a tough time really engaging with the literature, kind of understanding why you're even reading it in the first place. You see things like, like you mentioned earlier, the internalization of, of white supremacy, where you might start to even reject things of your own culture or feel awkward around people from your culture. Yeah, from guilty, guilty for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. is something that I know I definitely grew, grew up feeling. 
Mm, yeah. Definitely, right? And the thing is, is that there's such a limited narrative of what actually represents, you know, your story or other people's, or I shouldn't say other people, but, you know, marginalized groups' stories that aren't heard. Then there comes these problematic stereotypes that then come out because people are ignorant about those groups and what they're actually looking like. And so the, the limited representations in the media, like I said, come from this middle class lens. So oftentimes it's super deficit, right? Because it's juxtaposed against whiteness, whiteness being superior, right? Everything else being inferior if you are a person of color, for example. So for example, like black folks in the media, right? You see these common stereotypes of these like violence or bad parents or kind of token coons who are there to appease folks and make them laugh or so on and so forth. When you actually go and spend time and you live in a black community, you'll see that there's so much more, right? We're not all just rappers and athletes, nothing against folks that do that, but there's just so much more to our community. There's scientists, right? There's authors, right? There's entrepreneurs. There's so much diversity once you actually have those human relationships. And so it's unfortunate because it, people also think that, right, not having those kids of color, that's, that's for the people of color. That's for them, right? Right. Um, right. They're doing that but the problem is, is then white folks start to develop these distorted narratives. And this works for, I think, for any dominant group that doesn't allow voices or diverse voices from underrepresented groups. But they develop these distorted stereotypes and versions or narratives of what you're supposed to be so that when you engage them, like there's only one, there's like this black box, right? And you have to fit all these stereotypes. And if you don't, then all of a sudden you're not black or something. Right. Um, and that gets tough to, to navigate all those microaggressions within. So they don't get an actual accurate representation of what your community looks like because that community is not telling their own story. And most importantly, the people of color then begin to internalize those narratives and either distance themselves from black or start to develop deficit understandings of what it means to be in a black neighborhood or a black community or a black family and try to conform to whiteness as standard. Yeah. Yeah. That's so well explained. I was just nodding my head throughout the whole time that you're talking because I can relate to so much of it uh, myself. And I grew up in a very white community. I went to a very white school. And so as I'm listening to you talking, I'm sort of having flashbacks, memories, you know, definitely can see how all of those things resonated very true for me. As a parent, uh, I have two kids who are, you know, black kids, they're growing up in the, in the Middle East, not in a predominantly white culture, but they do go to a school that is multicultural, but is a British curriculum school. Mm -hmm. And one of the points or issues or concerns that I had and that I raised with the school in a parents meeting last year, I believe it was, you know, they were talking about how my daughter, who's older is going they're going to be reading these sort of longer novels these longer fiction novels and I remember looking at what was what they were going to be reading this year and it was the authors were all white males mm. the protagonists were white kids predominantly and mm -hmm. where there were elements of sort of other cultures it was from a very like mystical sort of ancient world perspective given through a white lens. Mm. And, wow. you know, I, I have issues with the fact that we, you know, where are the female authors right. um, and authors of other, of other genders and where are the narratives and the stories being told through a non-white storyteller? 
and you know, they, they said, yeah, we know, we know <laughs> this is an issue, but unfortunately we take our curriculum from the UK. So the, the issue is from the UK. And my issue there is, but there are black people and people of color in the UK and there surely are black children's authors and authors of color in the UK. Why is it that those authors' stories are not the ones that get the big book deals, get the headlines, you know, are presented as the desirable stories to present to students and to children? And when I look through sort of the library of resources that you have over at The Conscious Kid, there's so many books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's like this thing, this idea that these authors and these stories don't exist, but at the same time, they exist. But people are thinking, but where do I find them? So what's the disconnect? Wow. I appreciate you sharing that, that story with me, just, uh, just in general about your kids and the things you're going through, just to affirm that. So I think the disconnect is obviously within this notion of whose story has more power, whose story has value and whose stories don't, right? We know that there's a certain amount of space within the educational curriculum and consisting, like you said, when you talk about female authors of color, it's not getting centered. It's not that there isn't books available. There's plenty of books available. They're not being centered because there's this understanding that people from those groups, their stories don't have value or... That's kind of the underlying, the underlying myth. The larger narrative it often ties into is this kind of notion of like canon, right? So the school district will say, well, this is the, this is the canon that we've always studied. And these are authors who everybody loves. But when you start to go into those authors' works, a lot of times, like you said, like you mentioned, right, we're seeing a lot of these problematic norms that are being censored and more importantly, the complete erasure of underrepresented groups. And so why is that there? Why is this canon? Is the canon really that important, right? Or can we complicate what that looks like? So mm. it's important to know that underserved groups, underrepresented groups, man, we have our own canon, right? You know, when we talk about uh, feminist studies, they have their own canon. When we talk about black feminists, they have their own canon. When we talk about black existentialism, we have our own canon, right? But that isn't centered or given value, mainly because a lot of the concepts talked about in those stories often challenge um, these dominant norms, right? And start to undermine whose group has power and who can control the narrative. Mm -hmm. So it goes back into these larger institutions when we talk about, you know, racism, when we talk about patriarchy, when we talk about class, right? It's, It's tied to these larger institutions that are present here in the U.S., but are rooted in colonialism, so they're all over the world, unfortunately, right? The slaveocracy was an international movement. And so, you know, even though we don't have as much Dr. Seuss, as you mentioned over there, where you grew up, there's still these same kind of power systems and mechanisms of, for example, of white supremacy that are still penetrating in daily lives. And part of that is, is erasing people of color's voice, you know, people of color having the power to create their own narrative and their own story about their own existence, mainly to maintain the power of those dominant groups. And that's why I think there's a disconnect. And that's why I think that the canon is always used as this like supreme narrative of, of who has the most knowledge and which voices are considered the most intellectually superior. And it's not a, a coincidence when we talk about the role of institutions that they tend to center white males as being the quote unquote authority of what knowledge is supreme and what knowledge has the most value. Oh, yes. So good. Yes. When you said who is considered 
intellectually superior. That really struck me. You know, I've loved books all my life. I've loved reading all my life. But it was only really within the last two years that I have discovered the writings of Black authors. And my mind was blown that, like you said, we have our own canon. Mm. And at the same time, it's considered inferior in some way. And yet when you read it, the depth and the complexity and everything, it just, there's nothing like it for me, at least. Sometimes I think these institutions and this white centering gives this idea that these stories are only relevant, black stories and stories from people of color are only relevant to the people from those groups while stories that center white people are relevant to all groups. Right. So if there's a story about, you know, I remember um, when my my daughter was a bit younger, someone gifted her a book about loving her hair. And, you know, that's a nice book to give to, to a little black girl, but there's this idea that it should only be given to a black girl. It should only be read by a black girl. Right that a white child would not get any value from that. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, that's so true. So, you know, part of the work that I also do is like doing ethnic studies work. And we touched on it a little bit, but there's this assumption, right? Ethnic studies or books with kids of color or that have narratives about communities of color are just a favor we're doing for these black and brown folks. Right. And, you know, they should be thankful for that, that we're even doing that. And, but we don't need to waste our time doing that. When here's the interesting part, when we study ethnic studies, right. And we look at the work of, Oh my God, uh, Christine Sleater. Sorry. Just, it just left my head. So when you look at the work of Christine Sleater, she studies white folks and white students and what they get from reading, you know, ethnic studies curriculum and multicultural education. When we look at all the groups, white students actually learn the most and benefit the most because they're not used to having conversations of race on a daily basis. They're not getting exposed to narratives about people of color, right? So then there's there's also this notion kind of within school that people don't bring any knowledge to the school. They don't have any value because people of color's knowledge and experiential knowledge that we gain on a daily basis isn't considered valid. So students are looked at as like these kind of empty vessels that they're going to pour this knowledge into. When in fact, we know that students come in with their own histories and their own stories and their own cultures and that, and that has value. And as a result, we look at stuff like ethnic studies curriculum or reading books about people of color. We're like, okay, I've heard this narrative before, but these white folks, they have not heard this narrative, right? So it's like, we'll gain value in it, but they actually end up oftentimes getting the most out of it because they have not had exposure to these diverse narratives. And it's like you said, you know, once you start reading, getting access to these books by people from their own community telling their own story, there's so much nuance in it, right? There's so much wonder, I guess I shouldn't say wonder, but there's so much brilliance and um, diversity within, within the book about, wow, this is one, one lens of this group from the community that right. is not often seen. Yes. Yeah. It's so interesting when you were talking just now, I was thinking about, as you were saying about students of color coming in and sharing their narratives and how helpful it is for white children to be able to hear these stories because they don't hear them at home. I was thinking about how a lot of, I remember when I was growing up and I'm sure it still happens that a lot of children are taught this idea that we don't see color right? or we see it but it's just this beautiful tapestry, but there's no conversation around what difference actually looks like and means or anything like that. And so there's a very superficial, it's a very superficial way of 
trying to give the appearance of being anti-racist without any of the work. Right. Right. And so that's why to me, having stories where whether or not they are about racism, right? Because like, for example, you know, Toni Morrison was criticized many times by white people because she didn't center white people as her narratives or she didn't center, you know, African-American people's struggle against white people as her main narrative. The narrative doesn't have to be around the struggle of being black or a person of color. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, that's what people, when they come watching like black stories, whether it's a book or, or even a movie. Right. And you can tell sometimes you can usually tell oftentimes when it's a white person doing it because it's right. like this narrative, like they're going through, they gotta be some drug addict or they're in the hood. Like, <laughs> not to say that there aren't black folks that have those experiences, but that becomes centered, right? This completely negative deficit narrative always gets centered, right? They gotta be in a gang. They gotta be going through all these things, right? Not to say that those stories aren't important, right? Mm. But there's so much more, right? To being black than just going through it all day long, right? Like there's, beautiful moments of resilience and beauty um, within the community that is often not captured. And so it falls back into those, those kind of stereotypes. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I want to talk about Dr. Seuss now. Great. You and Katie have put together a really important paper on the impact of Dr. Seuss's writings, how he has been held up as this sort of standard for children of anti-racism, when in fact, a lot of his work, both in children's literature and outside of children's literature, was highly racist. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into sort of exploring this area and what are some of the findings that have come out of it? Oh, yeah. So it's, it's, the journey was, is pretty interesting. You know, it was during my first year as a PhD student and we were getting this tour around campus, right? And Dr. Seuss, Tim Geisel is a big name on campus, donated a lot of money. And so, you know, we're sitting up there on top of my person, a friend of my cohort, he says, man, he, he whispered, he, go, he says, well, he, he's like, you know, he did all those racist Japanese cartoons during World War II. And I was like, really? I had never heard of it. Right. He's like, yeah, they, he did all this like racist propaganda in the earlier part of the century. Um, you should go check it out. You just Google it. It's pretty, pretty well known. So I go back home and I'm, you know, I'm telling Katie about it. I'm like, did you know, we look it up and we're like, oh my God, you know? So then she got really fired up and starts, she wrote a blog post on it and wrote kind of this, like basically got the, the ball rolling on the paper and kind of starts to put all this. She starts, you know, she goes to the library and she's like, wow, let's, let's see if we can get all these books. And I'm like, you know what? You just see library, Tim Geisel, they would have all the Dr. Seuss books. So you just go up there and go request it. So she busts out this kind of blog post on it. And then from there, we're like, you know what, after she busts out that blog post and got the initial shell going of the work, I was like, you know what, we can turn this into a research paper and we like put the methods together and then started exploring all the books through our methodology. And then from there, the, the paper pretty much, pretty much was born, but uh, definitely got to give credit to her for being the first to, you know, get it going, get it started, get the idea and the ball rolling on that paper. And then, yeah, 
once we went into the books and we started looking at all the different things from the architecture to the characters and the few characters of color that are present and how they're being depicted, we're like, man, you know, this wasn't just something that was just these political cartoons, which are always explained. This is something throughout all these books, right? And the assumption is, is like when you approach literature and you said it great, we're talking about, you know, what, what is whiteness as a norm mean? One of which is, like you said, this universal application that it applies to everybody. Two is that it's colorblind, right? And so because it's colorblind, it doesn't have any actual interactions with folks or see them as human or understanding. So when they depict, when whiteness is used as a lens to depict, obviously can use a color, it's in these like stereotypes. So I think they have like black people, they had two black kind of characters with that, you know, had wearing skirts and looked like monkeys and were ape-like. And so it didn't even have the human aspect to it. So we're like, why is this always being, why are these books always being centered, right? And so then we ran into this, this, this narrative where it's like, okay, well, Dr. Seuss was racist up until he came out with Horton Hears a Who, which was supposed to be this kind of formal apology and the sneeches, right? And people actually use the sneeches to teach about race. So, you know, I was really excited to kind of dive in to those books. And so when we delve into those books, we see we're reading the sneeches. And just to give you, because we're like, this is what teachers like in, I mean, I'm talking about experts are using to teach race, which was just fascinating. We're like using a racist to teach race. I don't know how effective that's, that's mm. going to be. So we go into the sneeches and just to give a quick kind of synopsis of the story, it's like you have these folks that have stars in their belly and then you have these other folks that don't have stars in their belly. And the people without stars in their belly, they really want to be like the people that have the stars in their belly, but the people with stars on their belly, you know, they're essentially like kind of rejecting them and not letting them join. And then essentially the end of the book is where these people without stars in their belly, eventually, you know, they get stars on their belly and they're able to join this, this larger dominant group. Right. And I'm we're thinking, like, this is so problematic because it has these notions of like conformity. Like, why can't the people without stars in their belly just be happy with themselves? Why do they have to conform and get a, a star on their belly and be just like the dominant group? And only until they can join the dominant group are they happy and really able to actualize themselves, right? right. And it's just like classic narrative white supremacy. And I'm thinking this is what folks are using to teach about race to you need to conform to the dominant group. And this is considered cutting edge. And it's, it just blows my mind because it just shows once again, like people say that that's okay. That's where he shifted and he's not racist. And we're like, okay, well, first of all, we all know that race, the institution of race impacts everybody. We all participate in it. So there's no choice of not being racist. Okay. <laughs> so you, right. like, that's something you're going to deal with your entire life. Racism isn't something that you get to choose to partake in, right? That is such a white assumption because of the fact that, you know, they're not oppressed through, uh, through the institution of race, they're privileged, right? So they feel like they can interact with it when they choose, whether if you're a black person and you have this black skin and this black visual appearance, you know, you don't have the choice. You have to interact with race all day long, right? And so... Yeah push back on that part but this the, the second part is is that no none of these the book narratives don't change like this is even worse this is this is equally problematic as all the other books and the fact that people are using it to teach race i think is also indicative of how misunderstood race institution of race actually is yeah thank you so much for sharing all of that so succinctly and, and deeply at the same time what really strikes me about Dr. Seuss. First of all, I remember being a kid and seeing those books and I didn't like them and that's why I don't remember reading them. And so there's not many stories that I I remember, but I remember the cat freaked me out for some reason. I didn't didn't like him. And so it's interesting reading about where 
the sort of inspiration for that character came from, the sort of, um, you talk about how it came from this, it's a very anti-Black image of the Black minstrel shows. Yes. But what really strikes me, though, is this desire of the institutions to want to cling onto mm-hmm. this person because he's our person. <laughs> like, but he wrote no. all these books and they rhyme and, you know. <laughs> and, and it's like, so we're going to ignore... You know, and I hadn't, I had never seen any of the things when I was reading your paper, had never seen any of the things that the cartoons that he depicted and the kind of things that he wrote about, they are extremely vile. It's not racism light. If there's such a thing, it's extremely, extremely racist. And then this idea that, well, that was in his past, as you said, that was how he was before. And now he's had a change of heart. And so he's created these stories and now we're going to use these. And it's like, but what about teaching from black people and people of color themselves? Why do we have to hang on to this guy? Why does he have to be our guy? Exactly. Exactly. So like in the U.S., you know, they have this thing called Read Across America and all these schools all over the country, you know, read Dr. Seuss. So what was great, though, is uh, it's it's put on by the NEA, the National... um, Education Association, I believe, could be messing that up. But the NEA puts it on. However, you know, they recently did change their stance due to our work that we do to our work and choosing to center diverse authors as opposed to centering Dr. Seuss. But you still have all these schools that still want to center him. Um, and it's, there is this kind of grotesque attachment to it. And I think it's, it has to do with the ingrainment of white supremacy, both within our institutions and within ourselves and the way that people have come to understand themselves. And mm-hmm. um, t- about this notion of like, when people try to use this notion of, well, this is, Dr. Seuss would fall into that kind of Western canon, I feel like it's within the U.S. Absolutely, yeah. And yeah. it's it's not an exaggeration to say that the, the work that you've done, that you and Katie have done around this has really, really activated some people and has mm-hmm. really offended some people to the extent that, you know, you have to be careful about your identity and your safety. Um, Absolutely. And that's why we're not doing a a video interview today because we want to make sure that you're protected. But what strikes me so much about that is if it creates that kind of a reaction over books, children's books, that there is that kind of a violent reaction, how dare you Right. call out our guy. How dare you say these things and write these things about it over children's books? You know, mm. if mm-hmm. we're at that level there, when it comes to real institutional change, it is no wonder that people in this area of work face the kind of backlash that they do. And it is no right. wonder that change doesn't happen because they so so strongly and so vehemently hold on to what they know as what is right and true and the standard. Absolutely. And, you know, this fear, there's a fear too. I mean, at the end of the day, we're, we're just exposing, you know, how the book actually is depicting people of color. And so we're saying maybe we should 
switch up, right? Right. Is that going to be a big deal? But the, the issue is because it is tied into these larger institutions of power, these larger power structures, for example, white supremacy via that white Western canon, people automatically put it in this binary that you want to erase kind of our story. Right. right. You want to replace it with, with your narrative. And it's, it's not necessarily the case. I'm not saying get rid of every single white person's story. Right. I'm just saying right. this is not the best book. To this be is not our guy. <laughs> yeah. You know how many authors there are, you know? Right. And, and like you mentioned earlier, if we're going to, if we're going to be teaching about race and we're going to be teaching about people of color stories, you know, like you said, there's so many books once you actually can go out there and there's so much amazing content that does not get supported, but it's, it's all of it. The violence and the reaction is, is just indicative of how much power, like how relevant white supremacy is in this kind of history of where, when people of color or from underrepresented groups have stood up to dominant groups about control of their narrative and the way that their narrative is being depicted using violence as a tool to put them in their place mm-hmm. is as old as colonialism. And it's right. about colonizing knowledge. It's about colonizing narratives. It's about whose voice gets centered and it's about power, right? And that's why there's that violent reaction is because there are these underlying assumptions that tie into white supremacy that whites, that our, our white patriarchy dude who we love so much, his voice should have, have power because of these, these institutions that have privileged them and have privileged my narrative and my voice. And so now you're threatening to take that away when it's like, no, we're just trying to figure out a way to, to coexist. It's like, it's a buffet, right? There's so much right. space on the table. We can add other voices. You don't have to just have your voice be centered, right? And, and if your voice is going to be at the table, you know, let's make sure that the narrative is not being problematic. Right. Distorted. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Again, I'm just so struck by... The Conscious Kid, something that you and Katie started as a endeavor to help make sure that your children were able to read more diverse books than what was, you know, offered at the buffet is actually, it's a revolutionary thing that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. It means means a lot to hear that. It really is. And I really, I really honor you for it. And I really, it's so important to me for my kids to see the kind of work that you're doing. It's so important for so many kids and so many parents out there. What are some of the conversations that you have had with other Black parents and parents of color around this work, allowing them to see and giving them access to and pointing them towards, you know, there are books with narratives of us, you know, what has that, what is some of the feedback that you've gotten from parents? Oh my gosh. So when speaking with, you know, black folks of color, especially for black folks, I I think too, is people really appreciate being able to get access to these books. But like I said, it's not just about the content, right? It's about looking at the context in which the books themselves are created or consumed. So once again, realizing the importance of supporting, you know, black authors or authors from those communities, both to get a more enriching narrative, right? But also to make sure that that money is going back into the community and not once again being siphoned off to a dominant group who has appropriated your narrative for their own mm. um, benefit and, and come up now. It's not to say that these authors don't have, you know, white authors writing black books don't have good intentions, but at the end of the day, we do know that it is a white person, you know, using somebody else's narrative, oftentimes making money for, off of it and taking up space for what could be a black person's voice to give a more accurate narrative and make sure those resources go back to that community. And so, but the other, it's like, there's two parts of it. So there's this space of resilience, right? Where we see, 
you know, parents are like, man, this is so great. And you can see the impact on their child and not being afraid to express their blackness, right? Not being worried about wearing braids and getting punished for it or looking a certain way and assumptions being made about like your character and that aren't, that aren't necessarily true. But then there's this fight, right? When you go to the institutions and you talk about and you share this, these stories, right? There's, you can bring researchers about the impact and all this stuff. And when we look at the research on black parents, we know that institutions push them out, right? When black parents start talking about including things like more diverse books or equity and what that can look like in the classroom or being more inclusive of a black voice, we know that those parents are often gaslighted, pushed out. And even if they bring in researchers, Teachers don't even, I mean, I don't want to say teachers, all teachers, but essentially we know that the education system, generally speaking, doesn't even care for that research or even value it, right? And so it it becomes this ongoing struggle where you're always kind of trying to fight for your child to have a representation of themselves so that they can feel like they can actualize and be proud of themselves and have a positive identity because we know, right, when you do identity work, that if you don't have a positive identity of yourself and you're always being exposed to these deficit and problematic narratives, that does impact you, right? And it creates various yeah. forms of trauma that can last decades. I mean, we talked about it earlier, right? The biggest part of this work, you know, is like really unpacking your own white supremacy that yeah. has been embedded in yourself. And, you know, white supremacy is intersectional, right? It's not just race. It's race, it's gender, it's class, it's ability. It's all those encapsulated in this kind of concept. So it's all these different forms of oppression that are intersecting your daily experiences that have been embedded within you that you haven't really noticed because of things like colorblindness, which teach you not to look at race. So then you never get to unpack it or talk about it. It just gets embedded into your consciousness, right? As early as the age of when you're a baby, I think you can start seeing racism at the age of three. There's, I was reading this, this report wow. where kids are seeing racism at the age of three, and then it becomes fixed by age seven, meaning that although they may change the way that they're acting and the words that they're saying internally, they still hold a lot of racist and problematic narratives about right. uh, color. So that's the fight that you're always going against. It's like you see the positive impact on your child and you see the space, but as you go to these institutions that are unfortunately rooted in these, you know, institutions like white supremacy and capitalism and patriarchy, you still are still finding yourself fighting and fighting these battles to make sure that your voice is included. And like, and it's, it's one of the oldest stories in the game, you know, just right. fighting to make sure your voice is included. We've been doing it for hundreds of years. It's just like, you know, our turn now, I guess. <laughs> right. And it's, it's so interesting you say that. Rachel Cargill, when I, she was our very first guest on this podcast, and she said something that. like, you know, the work is not new, it's just our turn. Love that. Love yeah. that too. So it yes. gave me chills that you just said that as you were talking about narratives that we learn as children and how that gets internalized and lasts for decades. You know, like I said earlier, I'm still unpacking a lot of that stuff. And I know one of the major lies that is still gets at me is that I'm a burden. Right. Right. And so that came from being a black and Muslim student in a predominantly white and Christian environment and often Mm -hmm. feeling like I was in a stack of pure rice i'm like the little you know the little rotten rice that's in there yeah. or you know just some just someone who spoiled the purity and the pureness of what was around mm. me and so that has this ripple effect even now as an adult where i 
act smaller or play smaller than I actually am a lot of times, or I find it difficult to ask for what I need or what I want because I don't want to be burdensome to another person. It means that I am constantly or often thinking, what is that other person thinking of me? Because of my own story about myself, which comes from never seeing myself represented always feeling that story that you said about the sneeches, always feeling like if I could just assimilate enough, then I will be able to somehow pass. <laughs> Don't know how with my melanated skin, <laughs> but I'd somehow be able to pass. So just fly into the radar. And so, you know, my work in the world and my, just my person, this means I don't fly into the radar. You know, I'm out in the world. I'm seen by a number of people as a public figure and the work that I'm doing is, is having a global impact. And yet I mm. still have to contend with those feelings. And I know so many of us do. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I love what you're saying. It's so real. That's so real. And, you know, we talk about all the different ways that I think about different forms of research too that talk about that experience. Cause I feel that way too. It's so common, you know, especially for, for, for people of color, cause you're always, saying you're sorry, you don't want to speak too much, you know, you don't want to quote unquote be that burden, right? And right. like this notion of like the stereotype threat, right, taking place. But it's, it's also this notion of, I think when we talk about, you know, what can institutions do to change things like that is A, being aware of their own fragility, but also realizing that when you're being this burden, this is value, right? People see critique as something that is, you know, you want to tear me down and right. you want to eliminate my voice or something like that. When really critique is, comes from a place of love. If it's looked at as a place of this is a chance for me to learn something new about myself, right? And you can include that student's knowledge or that person or individual or human being's history or story of what they're trying to tell you, right? Now you actually are being, have an opportunity to learn and kind of modify your way of living to be more inclusive. And more importantly, you have a chance to become a better, better person, a better student, a better leader now, because now you're learning how to work with different groups of people. And more importantly, you're gaining empathy and being able to see yourself in other people's stories, right? That's the right. other problem is not being able to have empathy for individuals first off and not being able to see yourself from other perspectives, which is, you know, one of the important reasons of things like social studies, which is now getting cut out from a lot of school classes. Like, well, what, where does some of this stuff come from? We, we look at school as a lot of impact on a lot of this stuff, because when you talk about people's narratives, um, when you're talking about whose voice has power, you know, in school, when you bring up these things, oftentimes it's seen as a threat. And from that early age, you learn that your different story is not accepted in these larger spaces. And that carries on throughout life and you get disciplined for it, you know, right. um, is, uh, you know, anti-American or anti-establishment when, when it's just like, no, I'm just trying to see if we can modify the narrative to just be a little bit more nuanced in a sense. But it's, an, it's interesting that you say that, you know, with, even with all that success, right? Still right. feeling, <laughs> still knowing that these institutions are still impacting you. Like you're so right. successful, but still feeling that you're still not good enough or you're going to spoil that, that purity, right? right. That purity. It's that, it's that purity. imposter syndrome, which I think so many, yeah. you know, black kids, kids of color, kids who are, um, whose parent, who are immigrants, you know, have yeah. because of the lack of positive stories and then the like abundance of negative stereotypic stories. 
And I think it's really important for white people to understand that even if, and especially teachers, Mm -hmm. even if a black student or a student of color is not articulating because they're not able to, you know, are communicating the fact that that's how they feel about themselves, that they are carrying it. Right. So like many black kids, I was raised with the idea that you have to work twice as hard to get half as far. That's global. <laughs> that's anywhere a black kid is, in, is raised in a white environment. That's the message that you get. That's right. And so I have always worked super hard mm-hmm. and was mm-hmm. always, you know, the top student. I was always mm-hmm. excelling and getting all of these accolades and yet continue to carry that imposter syndrome. So I've had, you know, t- you talked about, you know, you have the success now as an adult. I had that success as a child mm. and I still carried it. And so I think it's so important that so often, especially liberal white people who are in, let's say, a uh, relationship with or in community with other uh, pe- black people and people of color will say things like, well, you know, we don't really have racism here or that's not really a thing in our community. And they're judging that by the fact that the black people and people of color in their community have not said anything. Exactly. To indicate that there is racism afoot, but really we're carrying it all, all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You don't get to to participate in, in the institution of race, right? Right. And, yes, and when you're a child as a black kid or a kid of color, you're not able to understand what's actually happening. You're just absorbing, right? You're just a sponge absorbing that these are the norms. These are the standards. Okay, they are the norm. I am the odd one out. I have to work twice as hard. I'm not going to mm-hmm. see myself represented. I must assimilate. And so they're going through their academic life like everything's normal. Right. But it's not normal. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why it's important to have books in schools talking about these things, right? right? Because you're internalizing all these narratives that are going on, all these little microaggressions and yes. macroaggressions. You're just internalizing it and, and you're watching it, but you don't really get to kind of unpack it. And so, I mean, you, you know that there's something wrong going on, right? I can think of, like, right. I remember yes. when, I was, when I was in kindergarten and I was around these, like, white kids and I knew that I was different. Because they were, they were like, you know, blowing up their cheeks and making their face turn red. And they're like, right. yo, he, he can't do it. He can't do it. And like, uh, at that point, I knew that I was, I knew that I was different. But because there's no real stories that are teaching folks how to interact with people of color and what race actually looks like because of colorblindness, mm-hmm. um, or think that, you know, like you said, they just haven't said anything. And, but the reality is, is that no, it's, it's a, it's a lifestyle. From the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep, right? I'm always going to be dealing with these institutions. Um, and although we haven't said anything to you, right? You yeah. participate in too. Don't forget that you are a guest in this community and that your whiteness still protects you from certain things, right? Right. So even though no one said it, right? Being aware of these, once again, these white norms, right? Colorblindness being one of those white norms, that universal application towards everyone's experiencedness, it's not really, it's not normal. It's just, it's just whiteness manifesting itself in the space. Yeah, yeah, thank you for articulating that. Where do you see the work at The Conscious Kid going over the next six months, one year, few years? You know, what are you planning or what's uh, wanting to unfold? 
Yeah, so we got a lot of exciting projects um, here coming up. So one of the things that we're going to be diving into is we're going to be doing a new series about kids and race that talks to educators and parents about how to, you know, interact with, with children, talking about issues of race to hopefully prevent some of the things we were just talking about earlier. Mm. So how, what does that look like at a young age, even for babies and toddlers? So that's going to be exciting. The Conscious Kid, we're also doing some new research on kind of ways to provide tools for teachers that they can use in their classrooms and in schools to provide things like critical media literacy, which basically analyzes, you know, provides this kind of set of critical thinking tools that you can use to both question what's going on in your environment, you know, how does this relate to to my life? How does this relate to kind of my identity development and my outcomes within a particular space? And what are some things I can do to take action? Um, And so providing like kind of some quick tools for teachers um, that they can use to analyze books or particular forms of literature for problematic or positive messaging. That's, that's also another project that we're working on. And then, you know, down the line, you know, lots of good things. I mean, I know we talked about one day, you know, working on a children's book down the line and getting a physical space for our library so we can have, you know, make community there and, and run training as well. Wow. And then we also we're going to be teaching a course here at UCSD on this critical media literacy here in the spring this year. So we got a, we got a few different things kind of, kind of going on here. That's amazing. That all sounds really amazing. You know, the impact that you've had just through your Instagram page and the work that you do there every day has been so impactful. So I'm really excited to see that impact continuing with these specific programs, a book, in-person space as well. I think that it's going to be amazing. I'm really excited to to see it all unfold and to keep cheerleading you on because this is really important work that you're doing. I really appreciate it, Layla. You're amazing as well. And all the work you do is incredible. And the fact that you have chosen to, you know, include our voice within this space just means the world to us. And I've really enjoyed uh, having this conversation with you. And we just want to say I'm super grateful and thank you on the highest level. Thank you so much. I, um, yeah, I share your work with white parents all the time. So it's, a, it's an honor for me. So as we, as we close up, I want to ask you our final question. What does it mean to you to be a good ancestor? Oh, that's such a, it's such a great question. Well, when I think about what it means to be a great ancestor or a good ancestor, um, I got to think about like the ancestors that I've, that I've had in my life. Ancestors have this ability to kind of create form out of formlessness, you know, create life out of lifelessness, situations that can seem dire can become bright, right? And it has to do with this interconnection with one another. So being an ancestor is about both understanding your own journey, but providing this guidance or not this guidance, this kind of this space for those who can come after you that helps to provide resilience, but also understand their own interconnection to one another and the universe and their highest selves, right? Being able to help to facilitate the highest expression of oneself, even within these spaces of oppression, right? And so that is, to me, one of the most important things and narratives about about marginalized groups is that people say that you go through this oppression and they're they're starting to learn, but then they think that's your whole life. But it's like, no, even within this 
racism, and even within this institution of race, and even within this institution of patriarchy and capitalism, right, and so on and so forth, I can still maintain my resilience and I can still have a happy life and, and have these moments where, you know, of, of resilience that are next to none. So mm-hmm. although those are things that are intersecting and impacting my life on a daily basis, Good Ancestor provides that knowledge and makes that knowledge accessible to those to know that, yes, you are still a human being that can express on the highest level, even within those spaces, but it will be something that you will um, continually battle with your entire life. But know that that will not limit, that's not going to be your whole story, right? You're mm. going to be more to you than just that piece. You have so many other parts of self and that self being both yourself, humankind, the universe at large, working for you and working through you. So understanding helps to providing an understanding of self, right? Of one's own power that they have and the power of their own voice, I think is, is what a good ancestor, a good ancestor does. That's beautiful, Ramon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And once again, I really appreciate it. I hope that this episode has helped you gain new insights and find deeper answers to what being a good ancestor means to you. We'd love to hear what some of your aha moments have been from this conversation. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at goodancestorpodcast and drop us a comment to let us know what some of your biggest takeaways have been. Thank you for listening and thank you for being a good ancestor.